Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Dan Spitz. He's a drummer, master watchmaker, and founder of Dan Spitz Watches. Dan, welcome. Uh, good to hear from you, and uh, always to connect with you, Ariel. Except uh, not the drummer, but I can play drums if you want me to. You know, mainly my background is guitar. Oh, guitar! I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm look. Your your former life as a rock and roller in Anthrax is such a major part of you. I knew you primarily through watchmaking, right? So it wasn't like I was like the Anthrax fan. I went back and appreciated the work of, of the band. I was a, a little bit young to be in the heyday, right. but I think that's sort of the most defining characteristic of you is that you, uh, like many, you took a pivot, a career pivot, and you became a watchmaker. I mean, you sort of need to address that first. Uh, talk about your your former career and, and, and the transition to watchmaking. Well, there's a lot of similarities, actually, and I'm, I'm pretty much one of the few, uh, if not the only, that can, that can draw many of these similarities at, at you know, the highest level of, of, of music, making music, taking over a couple of different planets, as well as, you know, getting to the the top level of uh, complicated uh, mechanical timepieces. So yeah, I was uh, a founding member of the band Anthrax, as well as another band called Overkill, and uh, sold about 30 million albums for songs that I've written and produced. And uh, I had uh, one too many days on a tour bus and decided to walk off the stages of, uh, you know, playing Madison Square Garden and and uh, do something else. and. And uh, I had a few children and didn't want to live uh, in a lonely hotel room anymore. Even though I had the love for music and that was my whole, uh, my life's existence, you know, that's all I knew. I did grow up uh, in my family. I'm a third generation watchmaker. My grandfather owned a, a store in uh, in the Catskill Mountains in New York and uh, you know, massive antique timepiece collection and uh, some of the biggest in the country. And when the Catskills were booming, if anybody is familiar, so it's right near the original Woodstock Festival, which is where I had my, my parents had a second home. And uh, that's where the big hotels were, like the Concord Hotel and Raleigh Hotel and Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and everyone would be there. It's where my parents met in the 50s. And uh, that's where my grandfather's store was. So all those people would come to my grandfather's store, actually, to, to pick up uh, high-grade pre-owned. He, he mainly dealt in pre-owned. Uh, timepieces and jewelry. So as a little boy, um, uh, around eight years old or so, I called him my papa. He uh, put me on his lap and we took apart. Uh, I, the first time I saw the inside of a timepiece was a Patek Philippe and it blew my mind. I, yeah. I never forgot anything since then. So it's just instilled in me just like music was. So when I quit music, this, it was kind of like a given, like, where do I go to school, you know, to, uh, to, to start ripping apart timepieces. So I want to talk about the foundations of growing up around horology and then transitioning into music. Obviously, most musicians, I'm guessing, don't grow up around watchmakers. 
But what special edge did you have? Did you maybe understand instruments better, timing better? What 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 was it about growing up around watches that may maybe maybe nothing gave you an edge as a musician? Uh, it's actually not just timepieces. It's mainly uh, um, I've always repaired everything. My really? room, my room growing up was uh, basically looked like mini NASA. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. My my dad was an attorney and the son of my 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 grandfather who was the watchmaker and jeweler. So sometimes, and he's an attorney in New York City in Manhattan. So a lot of times he would do uh, work for people and they, they didn't want to pay him. So in Manhattan, there was is an area of Manhattan, there's a big long street called Canal Street. And it's yeah, where sure. all the secondhand stuff was and, and illegal bootleg everything. So he would fill his trunk up with shit, basically. Uh, um, used stereos. And back then it had an 8-track in it and then AM, FM, and then it had the record player on top, but it didn't work. Like the record player didn't work. So he, <laughs> so, so he would take three or four of those where, okay, the record player doesn't work in this one, but this one, the record player works and the AM, FM doesn't work. And this one, the A-track works. And this, and he was just, every Thursday night, his trunk in the Cadillac was filled with just shit. And he'd say, well, go empty the trunk and whatever you can make out of it, if you can make it work, then I got some of the money out of the guy, basically. Wow! And so that was my room. I I just ripped apart crap. And How it successful were you? I mean, is it easy to take a an you know one deck out of a rec, a, a stereo system and put in another? I mean, it sounds like you were either a genius or this were e- these were relatively easy yeah. to work with. Well, that was my dad. He always had us working, every, you know, doing everything manual labor. I mean, fixing stuff around the house, everything from plumbing to everything. So that's how I grew up. But my room was was based on and stuff grew from that. Obviously, we we were. My dad's hobby uh, was big stereos, it was like massive oh, cool. stereo. So uh, it wasn't just electronics, it was mechanical things. And so uh, I, it was a no-lose situation is what he told me. Like if you don't get anything to work, it doesn't matter. You know, if you get it to work, it's a plus. So I just learned by doing and, and studying and there was no internet back then. And, and that's kind of how it rolled in. And then eventually I, with guitar, I started messing around with guitar amplifiers and I mean, even on the, the the latest reunion tour that we did with Anthrax for three three years, we did a global reunion tour. When I did go back to play, I built my own Marshall amplifiers just from parts that I toured with. So was so that, that because so, you wanted a specific sound? I just help me understand why someone wants to do that. Yes, I don't. I invent sounds. The sounds of the big four bands, as it's called now, which is yeah. Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer. And Megadeth, we invented a sound, not just yeah. a, a style of music and how to play it. Those amplifiers and, and sounds that were in our head back then, you couldn't go to the store and buy those sounds <laughs> at, the, at the amplifier store for guitars or the guitars themselves. They were the guitars and, and amplifiers weren't available. Eventually, when we got famous, we was able to sit down with Jim Marshall with Marshall Lamps and the Mesa Boogie guys, another amplifier company, and take our ideas of uh, we wanted our guitars to, to be very bassy, cross into the bass frequency. So when we played, you felt that shit in your chest. You know, when we, oh, went, yeah. when we went, go, 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 it didn't, it, it didn't sound like, you know, uh, uh, a pop guy's guitar player where it's very twangy and mid-rangey. It had that girth. Well, those amps to produce those sounds didn't exist. So I, we, I started soldering. <laughs> Basically, you know, putting the changing yeah. resistors, changing, adding more capacitors and changing circuits and stuff. And I had that kind of know-how. And then, then later on, it transcend, transcended into now 
you know, all the bands have have that sound that can go by it. So back now, then, it wasn't there. It was it was all but, of us, not just me. It was all of us uh, in the four bands, you know, eventually just hitting those guys up after they saw that uh, we, we were a viable conduit to, for them making money at this uh, and you know, the fans and fan base to who a lot of them are guitar players in our music. They're not just people who come to see the show and go home and drink espresso, but most of them in our, that audience, you know, they play instruments. Uh, okay, so I have to ask you this question. I'm someone who never grew up playing an instrument, but I love seeing good performances. And I've been to some concerts recently, including Metallica, and I feel like the the concerts now so rarely are they about actually performing good music. It's like tickets and the experience and all that. Where can I go to actually see like good metal other than the Anthrax show? Because I feel like it's it's really hit and miss these days. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm a roots kind of guy. You know, if you want to see something raw, you know, go see bands in the clubs. You know, go see some some blues or like go go see Joe Bonamassa play. So a smaller venue, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Joe Bonamassa. But, yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, I mean, just there's no background singers on fake music being played through his PA system. <laughs> Them dudes got their instruments in their school, overschooled. You know, were those were those special amps and stuff? Was that like a trade secret, or was that available to anyone? And you just sort of knew how to play the right music. I no. was wondering, just no, no. It's it's, it's a, each each person uh, uh, guitar player for us back then is we each wanted a, a sound that was in our head, and that sound matches our humanness, uh, what we play that comes out of us. Uh, you got to find what, what pairs with that sound in you. Once you get it, then, you know, that's your sound. And then someone can instantly recognize you in, in split seconds, the second they, they first hear your guitar play. They know who you are. And that's the key uh, yeah. to, be, to being unique. Now, I, I you could put me on stage and I could be standing next to Eddie Van Halen when he was alive. And he could say, here, dude, here's, here's the chord that I play through. Plug it in your guitar. Right. And it's his amps that I plug in. I don't sound anything like him. I could play his song. I could play a song. Right. But right. I play nothing. It sounds nothing like him. His amps are, he, he made his own amps. There's another guy right there. Right. He made his own amps. He made his own guitars. Yeah. Same thing. He had to find he, the shit wasn't there to, to the, the availability of, of guitars and the way he wanted them to play uh, his new inventive way of playing. That wasn't there. So it's the same scenario for him. You know, I'm seeing an almost direct parallel to the watch world here, right? We know those like famous stories in the sort of 50s and 60s where Rolex would put their watches on mountain climbers and divers right. and cave explorers because these people, they had a very specific idea for what their watch needed to do and it didn't exist yet. So they had to tell someone, hey, Rolex, make exactly this thing this size, right. this color it needs to do this. And it seems in the music industry, you had the exact same type of merger of, you know, the, these human needs combined with the right tool and the development of that tool. I, you agree? Exactly. I mean, the Oyster case, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. didn't, it didn't exist pre, pre to them. Exactly. And, you know, the, the way that all this benefited me uh, is with your initial question is, I'm a, since a very, very young age, I am a problem solver. That's how my brain works. I see anything in life. Well, I had the experience from my room that looked like, you know, I mean, the neighbors would drop off their TVs and stuff to me. I mean, everything was in my room. But I, I'm a problem solver. I don't need a book. I, I'm not good with school. I'm not good with taking authority at all. 
I am strictly, give me the shit, let me see it and touch it physically, and I will figure this out. So I'm a problem solver, and that's why I gravitated not towards just towards watchmaking, but when I decided to get the diplomas and um, you know, when I started, there was no schools all over the world, right? There, there was only one woe step in the whole world. That was in Neuchatel. And they only take six people every three years from around the world. And it's the only English speaking place where you could learn past general Rolexes, you know, for complications. Right. That's where I was headed the second I decided what I wanted to do. I need to be to get to the top. I, I, I'm, I want to be. What, what do the bandmates have to say about that? This was right after uh, I left the band. So you didn't tell them? They didn't have an opinion or anything? No, they had no clue whatsoever. Okay. So they, they know my family, I, I, you know, background, obviously, you know, but no, it was those, those uh, the, the, the music was over. And, you know, I do one thing at a time and I, and I kind of take it as far as I can take it. So it was once that was over, actually, I actually, I shouldn't say that. Once the band was over, I actually bought a, what I uh, uh, into a, a big business for importing uh, and setting up uh, living coral reef tanks. Uh, oh, cool! Yeah, so that's another one of my hobbies. But used to be that the saltwater tanks. I used oh, to be way into that. Oh, cool! Yeah, I, I, I was keeping corals alive while I was in the band many years ago before, like it was a, anyone was doing it. That's like, a nice nerdy hobby. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in when I'm all in, and I, I did that for a little while, and that's where I was actually thumbing through a watch magazine or a luxury kind of magazine there and uh, in my office. And uh, I was like, wow, you know, like, I think I should go to school. Like, wh wh where's the schools? And there's no internet. You guys got to remember that. It's like, how do you find out where there's a watchmaking school? You know, where'd you, where'd you go? How'd you learn? Cause you're right. That's hard information to get. Right. So I, I did find out about most that can't remember how or why, but they were just, they, it was an instant, you know, you're denied. <laughs> First of all, I'm American back then, so everyone, everyone <laughs> they is, still hold that against <laughs> us. Everyone that's listening has to understand. Way back then, if you were American and you even said the word watchmaking, you're basically a hack. Like you, you, you could fix some quartz watches with a. Battery. No, they're threatened by us. Do you remember what happened at the turn of the century, where the American industry almost killed the Swiss? Yep, they're still threatened by us. Yeah, well, they make the greatest pocket watches ever in the history of the universe or two universes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they, they, they just denied me, just told me some kind of, you got to go to like four schools first and 10 years of apprenticeship and maybe we'll consider you. So I said, okay, sounds good. <laughs> and uh, I found the Boulevard School of Watchmaking, a four-year program in uh, Jamaica, Queens, New York. And I, I, I went there for a two-week uh, shakedown test. Uh, every day I drove uh, two hours. And, uh, wow. and you, you, you do this insane stuff to see if you're, you have the aptitude and, and precision to... You know, I, I mean, for instance, if, if anyone wants to know, like one of the tests would be they polish a, a metal plate till it looks like a mirror and there's all holes drilled in it and they put holes progressively get smaller till almost invisible and they're threaded and there's little screws in there you have to take out and put them in. And if you slip off the screw as they get smaller and smaller, they can see because it'll scratch the mirrored the surface. So if you don't have the dexterity to do that, then right. you're, you're instantly like, okay, you're out of here, bro. <laughs> so were you were you just like already good at that? Yeah. I, I'm, okay. I, I, I was, you know, like I said, I'm always taking a Yeah, I mean, you seem stuff, like yeah. a shoe-in. You seem like right. you already have the dexterity. Exactly. You could hold stuff very precise way. So you, right. you breeze through the initial stuff, and then what? Uh, well, it's a four-year school. Um, 
And uh, I ended up finishing in less than a year and a half. You, you go at your own pace. So I, I, this is I, the one in Jamaica, in Jamaica, New York. Yeah. So I broke a, their fifty-three-year rec, uh, school record of the fastest graduate, and they immediately called Woe Step for me. <laughs> were you a fast? Were you a fast guitar player too? Probably really fast. I, I'm, a, I'm a fast learner. Okay. Yeah, but but it's not it's not because I'm some kind of child prodigy, dude. Like like Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> uh, it's just because I put in the work. Okay, so you, you know it's required to learn. You do it, and you just put your mind... To, well, you said you're a very focused person. You have your mind on something. You try not to distract yourself. That one thing, you do it. That's, and, and you got to have a, a, an old... old uh, beyond passion, okay? So I was already beyond passionate uh, because my goal was not to finish the Bull of a School of Watchmaking. I told you what my goal was. When I saw the magazine and saw the picture... My goal was I want to repair and work on complicated, the most complicated watches I could get my hands on. How do I do this? Okay, so you so you finished the program. Now you still need to get into Woe Step, right? Like that right. that that hurdle hasn't been jumped yet. Right. So uh, the, the 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 president of the Boulevard School of Watchmaking. Uh, I, I remember, I did all the mechanicals. I would finish their courses. I was already doing chronographs in their course. It's not part of their course. Their course. So they were just like, "This guy's a freak." Like, where do we send them now? Uh, so I had to do some <laughs> some some apprenticeship after that, uh, which I did, and and I was already running my own repair business after the Bulova. And then uh, finally, I got to call for a full scholarship to Wostep in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, and I was the only American chosen uh, for the was course. Was it because they felt bad? Were they like, uh-oh, this is that same name we were such jerks to? I don't know. I think they were all just metalheads and just let me in finally. <laughs> there you go. Did, they, did you play a lot? Because we know that in most Swiss watchmaking studios, there's no music, there's no talking. It right. would be so... I, but then right. you go to a place where they make jewelry... And there's and there's music playing, but well, something about the watchmaking—they're like it's got to be done in silence. I, actually, what some of the stuff really did blow me away. I did this I would find this out um, way after most of uh, when when they let me in in Switzerland to the complicated watch rooms, uh, which no other American had been to. And they they don't allow you in. When when you right. go to Switzerland, you go to the companies. They'll probably show you around all their watchmakers. There's 50, 60 guys watchmaking. And then there'll be this little room where there's only, depending upon the size of the company, maybe four to ten watchmakers. And it's sealed off. They'll do the complicated timepiece. Separate guys. area, usually. They yeah. don't let anyone in there that's not that speaks English. It doesn't exist, right? Or at least back then. <laughs> so they yeah. did let me in. And it was blew my mind once is I started walking around and they all have headphones, like little iPod headphones in back then. And you look and half of them are listening to one guy's blasting Slayer. I'm like, holy crap. And yeah, he, yeah. And, and, and remember, I'm looking on his desk and he's got like maybe two, three million dollars worth of watches apart. Like these are complicated timepieces. So, yes, they do listen to music and a lot of it's metal. And uh, the, most of the people I, I meet, you know, metal has, has infiltrated Eric Coudre is very famous for his love of metal. He's the guy that invented the gyro tourbillon. Yeah. So he, he's always known for, he has longer hair and he's, he doesn't speak much English, but he's, he has that reputation. But you're right. It is, there's a lot of people who use that music, not just to relax them while they're doing it. And, and if you like metal, you can understand how that fast music can be relaxing, but also to inspire the designs. I mean, we have, they won't say it often, but there's a lot of heavy metal watches out there, right? Right. Exactly. And uh, that, that is your parlay into, you know, what I do about my new timepiece that's coming out. And, uh, uh, you know, I, that was always what I wanted to be. You know, I felt that uh, 
uh, that heavy metal didn't have a good representation or have, or a good representative because we're unique people. You know, we're usually the outcast. We're usually the outcast people growing up, and that's why we cling to each other. When you go to heavy metal festivals, it's not. You know, the outsiders looking in, uh, well, actually, they, they kind of get to see it a little bit now because Metallica's gotten so big. But we're a loving group of people that stick together and because we're outcasts. So we don't really trust too many people. So a lot of my friends, along this long road that it took me to get to where I am, many, many years of schooling, endless years of apprenticeship and learning from people or secrets in Switzerland, uh, at complicated rooms, heading up, you know, Chopard in two different continents, right? Um, is the heavy metal people would write me emails going, dude, I just went into the AD and I don't trust the, of, of the word that he says. Tell me what I'm supposed to buy, Spitz. So they don't have someone like that. And that's what they need. And that's what they needed. And they need their own timepiece. And that, that's what I've been doing here for the last five years. Let's go back to the heavy metal artists. Now, I know that uh, some of the ones who have really gone on their career to become really legacies unto themselves and much more popular, they get into mechanical watches at some point. But sort of in the heyday of the success before watch collecting was a thing, was was there an appreciation for watches? Was that a thing? Were watches even worn on stage? Give me a little bit of a, a look as what it was like being a rocker and having watches around. A lot of my friends in metal are huge avid collectors. When the whole Tour Beyond craze uh, happened, and it was, uh, you know, um, available as a daily wearer because of CNC machines, obviously, right? When I started watchmaking, you know, there was hardly any Tour Beyonds because the actual cages and everything had to be made literally by hand. You know, and we could make the parts on my like Shablin, you know, lathes and and jig boring machines, but it's, it, it's <laughs> you know, you're looking at five, ten years to make the parts. So the parts can now be made in, uh, to the precision uh, that our CNC machine, machines can make. So a lot of my friends are collectors, like the bass player Fieldy from Corn has a huge uh, tourbillon collection. He loves tourbillons. Cool. Uh, Alice Cooper, you know, he's he's a vintage guy. Almost every bus stop and city he goes to, uh, that's his thing. That's what, how he spends his afternoon. He tries to hunt down places to go buy pre-owned, you know, chronos and stuff like that. Cool. So it's everywhere. I mean, everybody knows Eric Singer, obviously, the drummer of yeah. Kiss, right? Yeah. He, was, he started out as a Panerai freak. Same thing, asked him to do, what, what do I do? Where do I go? What, what's the cool watches? What, you know, they want, but because they're musicians, even if they're a drummer like Eric or anybody else, uh, they also understand their own equipment that makes them, in their band, their sounds and stuff. And they understand all. Most people have a, a good general understanding of it. They might not be as crazy as me and diving so deep, but they have an understanding of the mechanics and all that kind of stuff. So when they get into watches, it's not about a quartz watch and something It's for fashion. They get into it. They want to know what's inside. Same as a scientist. It seems to be the appreciation of a finely made instrument. Right. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a music instrument. It could be a, a measuring instrument. It could even be a company. But anyone who like understands how hard it is to put together something that has a nice presentation that's satisfying, uh, we, and, and, and again, we look for perfection. There is no real perfection in the world, but in watches, we can have this microcosm of, of artificially created perfection. And that's something that, again, you know, you want the perfect instrument to make the perfect sound for the perfect song. And there's yep. this idea that you're reaching for it. I don't know that there is the perfect of any of that, but that's why you end up having like a bazillion guitars, right? Um, 
Well, <laughs> um, you or know, it, it, in our music that we created, it's so fast and so angry, but it's so precise. There is no room for error in what we do. And no one in the band, if we hear the other guy make one single mistake, if we say, say it's a tour playing live, uh, the studio, you're obviously under a microscope. It's even worse. That guy's called out. Like, what the fuck, dude? Pardon my language, but that's what it is. Like, it's not allowed. It's zero. And that's where, that, that's where your focus comes from, right? Because you right. had to focus for a long it, sets. It, well, and, and in the studio back then, we didn't have recording studios in a laptop because we didn't even have laptops. So you're looking yeah. at uh, $2,500 an hour for the rental of a studio, uh, a half million dollars for the producer, and all the engineer, two engineers to run those giant mixing boards back then. They had to go to school. That was a full-on career for them. So you can't be a, a hack. <laughs> if you're a hack, then there's other guys back then uh, who got famous being these guys, like uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin and Clapton. They were called studio musicians. So they would get a call in the middle of the night, hey, the hack can't play. Get your ass down there now if you want to make some money. And he delivers Johnny on the spot when he gets there. So there's zero room for error there. And that that transcends into mechanical watchmaking, which is we, you know, it's the heart of the watch. It's what's inside the case that watchmakers care about. Yes, we, we do care about the look of a watch if it looks cool, of course, but it's 98%. It's show me the machine. Uh, you know, how is it made? Who is the designer? What's different about this mechanics? Just like a car engine, when you get up, up you know, into the Ferraris and Lamborghinis, show me some Formula One engines. That's what I want to see in watchmaking. Where's the Formula One engines and the crazy ass dudes that invented this crap? That's where I want to live. And that there is zero room for error there. It does nothing works unless everything is zero room for error. So that's Absolutely. It's a good correlation between the two. So I'm going to ask you a little side, sideways question here. What are some of the most common shortcuts you see luxury brands taking that just really make you, uh, you know, just sigh? And, and we, again, there's, it's easy to talk about the things which are amazing, but obviously not everything is amazing and there's a lot of expensive watches. So when you look at a watch, maybe you see the movement, you operate it. What are some of those common shortcuts that just disappoint you every time you see them? Let's say Young watchmakers, okay, if I think back, young watchmakers, uh, I had the privilege of working on, you know, vintage watches forever and ever and ever. I've seen everything a billion, you know, not everything, but I've seen a lot to come across yeah, my bench. Yeah. That that was my expertise. And is uh, is uh, old Patek Philippe's when there was no more parts and I had to create them from scratch before CNC. So the first time a, a young watchmaker gets past Rolex and starts getting into the, the really cool stuff, and we crack open an old vintage Patek Philippe, it freaks us out and blows our minds because we first we, we open it up we're like wow, like look at the hand finishes, it's incredible, and then you start taking the bridges off, okay, and you you this is where only a watchmaker sees. You as a consumer never sees this, and there's hardly any see-through case case backs back then anyway. So you all, well, most of this was just for us, you know? Right, but, right. but anyway, even beyond that, even if it was a, a display back, uh, we take the bridges off, and it's decorated under the bridges where they mount to the to the main plate. And then you just keep going, and, and it's, there's no, there's, it, it's like, why did they need to do that? They went beyond zero room for error, beyond what they needed to do, beyond... There's no cost cutting. And you start realizing, wow, this is not watchmaking. 
this is pure art. This is like, hey man, top this, bro. And it's just like music. It's like, hey man, top this song, bro. Try to play my shit. And that's what yeah. it is. It's like that. But if you, if I don't see that, then I feel it's like cost cutting. It's, it's not art anymore. It's just a company's way to try to manufacture something a little less expensive and to, to the commercial decision. Yeah. It's a commercial piece. Right. And then when I see another something from that company and I open it up and it's the same movement and it's like, you know, it's across the board. They're using the same kind of thing. You know, it kind of gets a little bit watered down for me. I like it. I, I like innovators and innovation. I like to see what people can do, what God gave them. They gave them, you gave you a mind to, to do something. And that's why I love independent watchmaking uh, a lot because your crea- right. creativity can flow. There's, there's nobody telling me no. How forgiving are you when someone comes out with some new type of complication or new type of system and it sort of works, but sort of doesn't work? Because you and I know that to really get something to work, you have to test it for a long time. You have to make a butter, bunch of iterations. You need to do so much stuff. But you know, most of these independent watchmakers, they don't have six years to go back and forth on design or the money or anything like that. So tell me about your feelings when someone tries to do something new and it kind of works but has issues. Do you pounce on them? Are you a little bit more forgiving? What are some of your thoughts around that? Um, you know, if someone, if a watchmaker hasn't had many, many, many years of repairing vintage timepieces and not just working for one brand. The only way you know what uh, what timepiece will give you um, in, in, in the long run, meaning uh, long, longevity testing, and that that's what I'm hired for within the Swiss industry, is, is to, to do that because I've seen so much. If you don't know that, how are you supposed to build your own timepiece? You can build it, right? But how do you know What's going to break in two years, three years, four years, or five years? You really don't know because in correlation, if, if you're a Porsche mechanic uh, and that's all you work on and your dad worked on Porsche, the same ones that he taught you all those little idiosyncrasies that no one else knows, yeah, you can get the Porsche engine running, but your dad knows the little secrets to, to make it really run and run a long time. If you don't know all those secrets, uh, the consumer or the collector in independent watchmaking is going to get shafted in the long run. And that pisses me off. Uh, it, it's, it's difficult to, to, to do that. So it's more like a, uh, it's like a smoke and mirrors kind of thing. It's a little bit dangerous for the collector and the consumer, you know, a, you know, um, a good, a good explanation would be if you pick Roger W. Smith, he builds his watches according to pocket watch rules. Uh, and, and so do I. So we make everything bigger, thicker. It might be, the watch might be a little bit thicker and bigger. But when Roger's long gone, 200 years from now, his watch or my watch can be any part that's broken. I don't care what it is, can be remanufactured by any judicially trained watchmaker from a wool step school, for instance. So it's for, it's a forever piece, as opposed to the more modern time pieces uh, where people could just buy some wheels and, and pinions and and kind of mash something together. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? 
timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. Would you feel differently if in the future there was more tools available that allowed people to recreate parts. I know that obviously making metal parts, there's tools that can do that right now. You can't just cut your own silicon and things like that. But what if in 50 years from now, there was you know 3D printing technology and at-home cutting technology that made it so that you could remake parts in some of these new materials or special sizes and things like that. Would that change your opinion at all? You mean, what do you mean about new materials? Like like silicon aspirins and stuff or just in general yeah, watchmaking well, parts? I guess part of what you said I took away is this common feeling where, you know, old old watches are are better because, you know, you can remake parts and things like that. And the new ones, you, you couldn't do that. But, you know, I think that that argument changes if those parts can actually be, you know, made by an artisan and not have to have sort of an industrial thing. And I'm sort of trying to to open up the potential of what what is a classic watch if one person could remake the parts. The machines, the reason we have independent watchmaking right now is because a lot of the massive big companies move so wholeheartedly and solely to uh, machines that are CNC-based or, or numerically based, I should say, right? Um, and so the, all the old watch uh, machines, like the Shaolin lathes and the jig bores, they were put in the basement for, I don't know, 30, 40 years and just held there. And then we finally coming out of watch schools in Switzerland said, hey, man, can we buy some of that stuff? We just figured we, we, we'd see if we can get it working. And that's how this was born, the ability to get those machines that all the watches in the 50s and 60s and 70s and a little earlier were made. All those machines are now in our possession, in my possession, in my workshop, at least, and that's very rare for the United States. So we can pretty much make anything, uh, be, it, be it slow and by hand, um, yeah, you know, CNC can pound stuff off uh, that that those machines can't. Meaning, CNC to differentiate, CNC machines can make parts wheels skinnier. Okay, that you couldn't make by hand because you would destroy that that piece of beryllium bronze or, or, or brass or whatever it's made out of. Uh, the same for the pinions, and that's where all the all these new crazy designs are coming from. Right. The ability for us to program in CAD on a computer, test it in CAD, and then test it again coming off the machines. And then once the machines get it correct, mean, meaning numerical machines, means for those of you that understand it's, it's all, it's, it's, that's what CNC is. Um, once that part is perfected, it could take years, uh, and all the, the wheels, opinions, the gears. Once it's perfected, then we can you can make that in, in more mass uh, quantities. And the perfection is something which is really hard. Like don't don't no one should undermine that because once you have something working in a software environment, that that's like one step of the way towards it working in the real world. But just because it works in software, the software doesn't understand as many variables as there really are in the real world. Correct. And small 
tiny, minuscule differences in how something is cut or machined or polished or whatever can have a huge implication uh, in the watchmaking environment. Correct. For instance, uh, you know, the precision in my time piece, most of the parts need to be as accurate, uh, accurate of, of three microns or less, or it doesn't work. So yeah, and that, a, and a lot of that can't, can't be done by hand. Now, let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey, because you began by saying you wanted to work on the world's most complicated watches, um, and you got to do that, which is great, and you learned a lot. Uh, but now it sounds like you're transitioning towards more of an entrepreneurial journey where you want to assert your name, and it sounds like there's going to be the DanceBiz watch brand. That's right. So Talk for about that. the last uh, five and a half years, I've, I've been on uh, uh, research and development for my own timepiece, which is uh, developed mainly and solely to be uh, um, uh, marketed or sold to uh, the heavy metal and love people who love heavy metal because they've never had a mechanical timepiece that's been built for them to represent them and a representative uh, all kind of wrapped up. In so, are we talking about musicians such as yourself, or fans, or both? Any and all of the above. People who love mechanical timepieces and also love uh, to 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 blast heavy metal music. And, and you have my attention there. That's mm -hmm. good. Now, how do you marry those things together? Uh -huh. <laughs> that that's been the difficult journey, right? And that's about to be released in in, in the next uh, month or so. You, everyone will be able to see. Um, I mean, there's three patents on my mechanics alone uh, as of right now. So it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, so, for, for instance, it's not just heavy metal stuff. Uh, you know, I'm a watchmaker, so and I like to break rules. So I, I have inventions in here that have not been done previously in watchmaking, and that's very hard to do because pretty much everything's been done 13 times. It's just twisted a little different way. For instance, my watch has no it has no bridges. There's a little secret. There's no bridges. Interesting. There's no bridge screws. There's there's nothing of the sort. It's uh, it's pretty sick. <laughs> so I want to like put things into context here, which I think is super important. And we have this in watchmaking. So when you said before, <clears throat> I want to make a watch for people that like heavy metal, that could have been something that was very very mainstream, or it could be something which is that theme, but it's also an art item. When I say an art item, it's the person that made it, first of all, wanted to be original, right? Like you knew what else is out there. You're well-cultured in the space. And you said, in addition to knowing everything that's out there and knowing what you people consider good, I'm now going to invent something actually new. But on top of it just being a design, you now are, are, are sharing that there are some mechanical elements which are new. So Really what you're doing is you're aiming for the top of the top. These are people who are not only music aficionados, but understand the the, the watch culture so well that they can appreciate what you're contributing. Very good, man. You, 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 you grab, grab hold right away. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the expert, bro. I should, just, I should have called you a long time ago to help me design. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you nailed it. Yeah, I, I, you're completely right. Listen, I'm an artist. From that's how I was born. I, I breathe that. When I walk around each day, I, I don't look at, at at things as as other normal people do. Everything I see, whatever it is, I I I, I say, how is that built? How, how do they do this? How do they do that? That's my brain never sleeps. It's I'm not I'm not normal in that respect. So if I'm gonna you know develop something, 
for for the people in my community. Um, I, I am the guy that understands it, right? I, I'm the guy that that was in Wall Step. I'm the guy that headed up some of the you know most complicated washrooms on, on our planet in, in, in Switzerland. So I understand everything and how it works. And uh, I just felt uh, you know a need for this, a need uh, for people to feel comfortable. Um, you know, in heavy metal to have their own kind of watchmaker dude. And, and I have something that represents them. You know, that's a legacy for me to leave. And you're right. It's my art. Either you like it or you don't like it. And I really don't give a shit. And it's the same thing when I put out my music. Our first album and the way we played came out. And it was the same feeling I have right now. When we were in the recording studio for Fistful of Metal and no one had heard our album. No one had heard this type, that type of music at all, ever. Uh, we knew what we had. We looked at each other and go, oh my God, it might take us a while, but when people hear this music and understand what this new thing is, you know, they, they'll get it. I mean, like it's like the Grateful Dead when they started, you know. Uh, they, they have a cult following. They didn't give a crap if they were mainstream on the radio or not. In fact, they didn't want it. That's the way all of the big four bands were. We never wanted mainstream, and that's what my independent watchmaking company and what I represent is. It's my art giving, given to uh, the world. I, I also look at it as you're the critic, right? Like if you have a commercial watch, you want it to appeal to, we'll call it a consumer demographic. Your consumer de demographic is you. You have a particular bar that you've set for yourself. You say, I know what this needs to look like. I know what this needs to work like, and I know the quality this needs to have to satisfy my own elated taste. If I can make me happy, that's the goal. And as, as a function of that, there are others who will be like, oh, Dan has good taste. I actually like this as well. Perfect. But you yep. are consumer number one. That's it. You got it. Because, hey, look, if I like it, most of the heavy metal dudes I know like the stuff I like. You know, it's just like, that's just the way it is. That's that's our mindset. That's how we breathe, and that's that's what's inside of us. We're metal dudes, you know. But then again, Ariel, just just to prove a point here, there's so much cool mechanical breakthroughs in my timepiece. Later on, uh, this is uh, the the mechanics I invented is somewhat modular, so uh, there will be a traditionally based movement uh, based from this later on as well. It can be tweaked. Now, it, can be, it, it can be tweaked either way. It's hard to explain without you know, people having a tangible uh, piece of it just yet. Well, no, it sounds like you made a modular system that you want to build complications and things on later. That's, of course, the, the practical way of doing it. Um, and that you have a journey in mind. It's not just one watch, but a bunch of things that will come later that you could vary up design, but they all have to have an underlying mechanical foundation or else there's no point in thinking about adding this right. feature or that feature. And, and uh, each piece is unique, each piece is hand-finished. And it's it, it, independent watchmaking is about the, the watchmaker's story. My story is like no other watchmaker in the history of watchmaking. I'm a unique freak. Right, I'm a metal dude who turned out, you know, where I am in, in watchmaking. So I'm on, you know, two different mountains, you know, and uh, and um, that's my which, story. Which is awesome. and, and, and I work alone. It's kind of like the, you know, I'm the freak. Everything that was done in this timepiece, I had no help. It was fact. It's, it's the biggest struggle ever because I tried to do it here in the United States, where there's nothing. I can't even. <laughs> I can't buy the metal that I need. 
the people in Switzerland won't sell it to me. And it's me calling. They know who I am over there when yeah. I call. Yeah. And I say, I want to buy a certain kind of metal. I need to make this pinion. And they tell me I got to, I got to buy, you know, $40,000 worth because that's the smallest quantity that they sell. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that would be enough for what, seven of my lifespans, <laughs> you know? So and I'm like, dude, no, I only need like, you know, 10 bucks worth, you know, that, I mean, that would last me 20 years. Like and, it, and when, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a struggle there. Ariel. Yeah. It really is. And I tried in the beginning, not just to do this for me, but to open the door for many other uh, American watchmakers to, to also, you know, start making their own time pieces or at least get together a bunch of them and have the supplies and the know-how and the things that we need here in, in the United States, or at least a conduit from Switzerland or Germany to get that stuff here. And eventually I, 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 it, was, it just destroyed me. It, it, it slowed me up and destroyed me. I, I want to mention that on the Swiss side, to get the factories <laughs> to do something, you literally need to go there and be like, hey, here's some food. Oh, we share a cousin. Um, do you think you could do this one thing for me? Like, so there's an uphill battle to get suppliers to do anything unless you throw a bunch of money at them. You not only representing someone who's a foreigner, but someone that like can't walk over there and literally sh share familial relations, you're always gonna have a disadvantage. And then just to sort of corroborate what you said, if you're a watchmaker in the United States and you'd like to build some or all of your watch through suppliers in the United States, there isn't a, a, an infrastructure of companies right. that can offer you the precision, the parts. It's like they're sort of Zero. there, but it's like, yeah, it's no, it's nowhere on their radar to do anything and this precision at this small volume for them. Like this is a, this is a stupid joke. This is like a like a right. you know, it's like a trick. It's like you're playing a trick on me. You want right. it to be this insanely detailed, right. and you want to order ten of them. Yeah, go screw yourself. Exactly. I mean, I spent five months trying to convince a guy uh, in, in a massive, huge metal conglomerate that's that's based. In, it's a, a metallurgy that's made in Switzerland that we make something out of inside the movement. And they have a distributorship here because they have other things that they sell to the medical supply and people, uh, NASA and those kind of aerospace and all that kind of stuff. And I'm telling him, here's what I need. Here's the code. Here's the thing that here's everything you need. And here's a link to it. And he comes back, it takes him two months to come back to him. Finally, he says, uh, we, we don't, that's not ours. We, we don't make this metal. Uh, we don't, we don't get that. And I'm like, yes, you do. You, you, you make this. You've been making it for 35 years. I need some of this metal. Can you, you know, you're the distributor here in the United States. And if you distribute it to me, I have many people who would buy this from you. And they just don't want to hear. It. They just say, well, we, we don't, we don't get that here. <laughs> you know, that's what you get. I mean, none, none of this surprises me. So, I, again, I want to talk more about the brand, but it sounds like there's still a story about how the watches are made. What was the solution? Because obviously you figured this out. We mentioned that the Swiss were uncooperative. The Americans were unavailable for what you needed. What did you end up doing? Friendships. Friendships in Switzerland and France and people, other independent Oh, so you did. You went to bring them cake and then shook their hands. That's correct. Yeah. So, you, you know, and they feel sorry for us. Sorry, United States people. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. You'd be like, oh, I'm so, so humble and poor in my country. Right. We have no springs. But, we have no but, screws. But, Ariel, the other part of it is, it is, it's not just the, the United States, we have a horrible problem. But the independence, I would like people to know, the struggle that all independents have. Because we don't make 500 or 50,000 watches a year. 
that's not our gig. You know, that we're, we're usually people who make a handful of, uh, of and why art, is, and of, explain of, why that's a struggle. Cause it sounds actually easy. You're like, I have less work to do because every, <laughs> even people, uh, watchmakers in Japan, people, we, because we make small quantities, Switzerland has uh, a minimum, um, minimum amount of metal you would buy, minimum amount of jewels to buy, and it's outside the scope of what we all of us would need. So either we all got to get together and do a pool of many people buying the same size jewel. What's the chances of that? Zero, right? So the smallest quantity of one size jewel in my movement, the minimum they'll sell me is 500 jewels. I don't need 500 jewels if I'm making... Uh, 10 or 15 watches a year would be big for an independent, right? But even if it's 25, uh, and there's many jewels in the watch. So that's the struggle. So even if you do have a supplier who will sell to you as an independent, uh, they have minimum quantities that are outside the boundaries of what we need, which would, you know, skyrocket the cost of, of getting off the ground for, for any independent. So or, let me, let me or, play or, the, or let me play the devil's bad, advocate here. I got to play the devil's. I, I mean, you're absolutely right. And it is a challenge. I mean, we could have, again, another whole show on the struggle of the independent watchmaker, watch repairer, watch designer. Like there is huge struggles out there. But the argument on their end is we're a private business and we want to sell to those people who think in the long run are going to be the best clients. And that tends to be the biggest guys here. And when we sell to you, they think we're just potentially feeding their future competition, even though you're small now. Mm -hmm. So what I have to do to make everyone happy is continue to sell to them in bulk at a cheap price and offer to sell to you only at exorbitant rates so I can make the other guys feel better that I'm not helping the new guys. Bingo. Yeah, you know, I couldn't have said it any better than you just said. It. Yeah, I mean, you have your pulse on everything, Harold. You know, that's exactly the story. That's exactly what it is. And now, worse than ever, because independent watchmaking has grown to be, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> if you look at the GPHG awards, like half of almost every category is, is independence. Okay, so it just shows you where we are on the map now. We're the innovators. It's the same correlation with my old music. Same thing. Didn't believe in the sound. Couldn't get record deals. My manager is the same manager. Had us and Metallica held, had two cassettes in his pocket and went around for two and a half years to every record <laughs> company and said, "This is the new music. This is the new music that's coming, guys." And they said, "It sounds like when you only flush your, your toilet in your house, that swishing sound. That's what this crap sounds like. Get out of here." Yeah. So try. You know, <laughs> it's the same struggle, but then you know to prove them wrong in the long run is is is, is a fun thing. And there's nothing we can do. There's always a way, if, if, a will, and a way. If if uh, if you fight, if you fight against the big dog, uh, but uh, you, you said it pretty good. Look, so we got to talk it, about marketing it, it, for a second. Just just okay. to end this. There's a good part of this story, everybody. The good part is there's very good, and loving, and incredible people in independent watchmaking. For instance, like a guy named Carrie Vutelainen, who was an instructor for complications at Wolstep in New Chantel at, at my school that I went to. Carrie noticed the struggle that we all had. So when he reached his, his top position, guess what he did? He owns a dial factory. Okay. He bought one and made it one of the greatest dial factories in all of Switzerland. But you know, if any of us call him up, he'll make us one dial. Does anybody know that? And this should yeah. be known because I don't know if anyone even speaks about it. He, he and he does other stuff. He's too that discreet I won't about, talk his, about his his nature of being a supplier. Most most people know him as you know he has a brand Vutalainen, but he has 
a supplying side to him, and he's very discreet about that. But you know that's that's true, and there are those people out there. But he and others only know that because they see the struggles around them. They're like, oh my god, there's like a real need here, and you know he's he's been very entrepreneurial about it as well. But he knows uh, he knows who to feed. He knows you know who his supporters are. So so I just want people to know that there is it's a loving community. Uh, independent watchmaking, very long. Everybody helps everybody behind the scenes. So if there's a struggle, there's usually a way out. We, we're all behind the scenes talking all the time. So that's a good segue in terms of helping one another towards the marketing side. Now, every independent watchmaker has the struggle of how long is it going to take before other people appreciate the nuances of my art, Right. Because good artists, especially when they're at the peak of their ability to put together something original, have to remember that very few people have the same education and culture they do, and it takes time for people to appreciate it. It can take decades. You look at some of the most popular watches out there right now, none of them had overnight success, not even close. And the independent watchmakers have success. Again, they had to make watches for many times more than a decade before they sort of hit their stride. But you, Dan, you have a very special relationship with some, we'll just call them influencers, important people whose taste and decisions matter uh, to a community. How are you going to mix uh, the fact that you have, again, a, a niche luxury art item with the fact that you can get it validated relatively quickly and have a leg up on some of the competition? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I think I might. My brand, I, I've been building my brand for, for a long time. And people know me before I even came on the internet on, on Instagram, which is where I kind of live, uh, you know, in the industry, because I've worked at so many companies with NDAs that people don't even know about besides, you know, Chopard and all the other companies. Uh, and, and been a ghost builder for so many people with NDAs. Yeah. And that's what most of my friends do. For people don't understand what ghost builders are. It's the same as a ghost songwriter. Uh, or your pop stars that you think wrote all their songs and then you find out that they didn't write anything. <laughs> you know, that's called the ghost writing, right? They, they, they're not allowed to put their name on the album. But see, we have the same thing in watchmaking. So a lot of the timepieces you think were handmade by some of the bigger brands in the world, uh, they weren't. They weren't made by their people. They're made they outsource by, it. They're outsourced to, the my, to, to all the independent guys who have the time and precision uh, without oh, oh, people overseeing them to make those special timepieces and limited runs because it wouldn't be profitable for a big company to make uh, five or 10 watches of a certain kind and stop everything to do that. So, um, you know, that, that's, that, I, I don't know. Uh, Ariel, so you're not I, going for mainstream appeal. You wanted no. to stay just within the community. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Small, okay. Small quantities. Each watch is, is a piece unique uh, for a special person that I develop a, hopefully a special relationship with. And uh, that that's my art. But you could get really big, you know? No, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, but it's I'm, always there. It's nice to know it's always there. Right. Yeah. No, that's my my gig is is uh, you know making cool shit that no one else can can have, and when somebody puts it on their wrist, uh, they just say like you know, wow, you know, holy crap, you know, that's incredible. Like, what is that? Show? Can you explain it to me? You know, and and then they say, wow, it's just <laughs> dude, this watch has no bridges. You know, it's this this there's no screws. Like how, how, it's a mystery. How, how did, how did he put it together? How, how does that work? You so know? it's a spectacle. Right. It, it's, yeah. 
That's, that's what's cool. That's breaking, I mean, breaking this new ground. Is exciting. Look, I look at it, I look at my, my old music. Every time we put out something, we broke new ground, right? It was uh, people. Always a new sound. Uh, always a new sound, a new, a new uh, whatever it was. We put out a new concert. It was new staging was that people just talked about it. It was, it was because it was from us. It comes from my our fingers and our hearts in the music, and it's the same thing. Uh, what I could do with, with independent watchmaking because I was able to amass all those machines that I talked about earlier from all over the world and spent years getting these vintage machines. Go to school to learn CNC, CAD, CAM. I'm my own programmer. I'm my own CAD designer. I'm my own CNC runner. In fact, I built my own CNC machine from the ground up. Now I need a bigger one to do these watches more accurate. And that's, I've restored every machine in here. This is my story. I'm just a crazy dude inside some walls. And this is my art. That's my beautiful story to the world. Uh, and that, that's what my timepiece represents. It represents me. Well, the story of the timepiece, of course, will continue when, uh, when I get to see it and I get to write about it. But sort of the last line of questions I have, we only have a few more minutes, is about the heavy metal aesthetic. Now, that can mean different things to many people. So I guess I'm going to ask you, what were some of the inspirations you had? Was there, it was the equipment? It was something about the, the, the album covers? It was something about the, the, the anything? Where do you personally draw the heavy metal aesthetic from? That's a good question mainly just from my innermost being of being a you know having heavy metal run through my my blood uh that's just all i that's what what i am and what makes me it's not a choice i didn't have a choice uh of how i feel inside uh, <laughs> i, I lived, grew up listening to all types of music my, my dad was a huge uh, you know jazz guy uh, you know, so Benny Goodman and Frank Sinatra and all that stuff was blasting me out of bed. For that was like the heavy metal of the time, music. kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that music. Yeah. Literally blast me out of bed. His stereo is way louder than any guitar I ever owned. <laughs> 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 so, you know, so that's just that's just uh, I'm a plethora of what's what's inside of me, and uh, and that that's just how it comes out, you know. And I know because that's me. I, I know what what the heavy metal people love how they feel inside. They feel the same way as me. So if I love it, then hopefully a few of them will love it uh, and others will talk about it. This, the, the other end of it is I, I often wonder, and I know that when these, these timepieces and the representation uh, of my watchmaking for the heavy metal community comes out, you know, they're going to want something at a lesser price point from me as well. So uh, that's that's going to be a little bit difficult because not everybody can afford unique handmade pieces. Of course. So is, do you have a price point yet? Is there an average? Like, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah, this this uh, the unique pieces are seventy k. Okay. All right. You said the unique pieces. Does that mean you're going to mm -hmm. also have limited runs, or how does that work? No, that's just these. That's what they're called. I mean, each piece is unique, so it's like okay to understand. So one that. at a time per customer, they're going right. to want little differences here and there. Right. You know, I mean, again, I have to just ask a little bit more because when I think heavy metal, there's such a specific aesthetic associated with it. I've always been attracted to the art, right? <clears throat> it's dark, it's masculine, it's aggressive. It's just something I happened to, to think is cool a lot. But, uh, you know, when you think of, let's take your watch out of the picture and some of the other watches out there. What watches come to mind that you think fit into the heavy metal aesthetic? You know what I mean? I'm just curious. None. None? <laughs> 
Yeah, none. Uh, there's just, not that, it's probably just, true. There's not that just, many. Just, there's not. There's just people that have said, "Oh, let me put some skulls on a watch or something like this." Okay, now it's heavy metal. That's, well, that, that's that. That's you know that that's not going to do it. The skulls is weird. There's too many skulls everywhere. Yeah, it's not yeah. even about heavy metal anymore. That's, that, that's not it. And I don't think there is a heavy metal like the quote unquote thing. It, it's not that. It's more like a, what I'm trying to convey here is that the heavy metal community needs a watchmaker as their representative and to, and to define uh, that they have. Um, I've met with many companies over the years, Ariel. I try to tell them that there is, as we discussed earlier, a lot of heavy metal, pe- heavy metal people who have a passion for mechanical timepieces and they don't understand. I try to tell them uh, that about hip hop guys when hip hop was big, they grasped that when Audemars Piguet started, and, and yeah. they, they saw that there was a huge amount of money if they blinged it up a little bit, which they were totally, you know, against. Let's say I'm, I'm sure that wasn't their mo back then. Um, and this the same thing in heavy metal, but no one can tap in there because they they, they don't have that trust uh, of these big brands like that. And there is. So where and what and who, and you tell me, Ariel, name me one brand or person or anyone that has that has fed the heavy metal community and raised them up to the heights that they should be at and, re- and recognize their love uh, for timepieces. I mean, all I can think of is Bramont working with Ronnie Wood a little bit. But that is, you know, the, the, it's not really heavy metal. And that's, you're right, there's very little actively working with that industry, even though musicians of all types um, are obsessed with watches. It's a mm-hmm. natural correlation. Um, and you're right, heavy metal is an area that just hasn't got its fair share of attention. And, and but it not, will. Just, not just heavy metal, I mean, rock too. I'm, I'm, I, I'm using that, to, I shouldn't really pigeonhole this as, as being, you know, uh, Black Sabbath. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's rock and roll with people who love Led Zeppelin and, and Eric Clapton. I mean, but heavy metal is a special thing. Hey, it's a know, special clap, clap, hard clap, music. Well, Clapton is one of the biggest watch collectors on planet sure. Earth, right? But there's nothing there either. I mean, he started Cream. That's the first heavy metal band. That's it. That's the be- definitive beginning of heavy metal. It's before Led Zeppelin. Yeah. But there's there's nothing feeding all that, Ariel. And you 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 just pro- proved my my point. So I, if I can be, you know, a minus one percent of that first person, just like I was the first person to influx the world with my disease of my that type of music, uh, if I can be that and open a door to other watchmakers who are, who are also heavy metal heads to, to follow suit, uh, then I accomplished my mission. Dan, we're, we're out of time, but I'd like it if you could tell people where they could learn more about you and the brand on the internet. Uh, the internet is danspitz.com, my name. And uh, I, I hover around Instagram at danspitzofficial. Go out and listen to some Anthrax and your guitar playing because that's fun and that'll get you in the mood for the watch uh, prior to when it comes out. Dan, I want to thank you so much for being on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. It's always just killer talking with you, Ariel. Anytime I'm I'm here for you and uh, hopefully I brought some insight into not just my world, but the the world of independent watchmaking for people who don't know what it is. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, 
comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at ablogtowatch.com.